So 1 Corinthians 13 tonight. 1 Corinthians 13. And while you're finding your place, speaking of refreshments, I want to thank Bonnie for bringing in the wonderful zucchini bread back there tonight. It's really good. It is zucchini from Market on the Move, by the way. So, yeah. Good stuff. All right. So, many people, when they study 1 Corinthians, or they even think about 1 Corinthians 13, they pull it out of its context. And let's remember that 1 Corinthians 13 is in the context of spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 form a unit in this letter to the Corinthians. And the reason why 1 Corinthians 13 is right in between the two definitive passages on spiritual gifts in the New Testament is because Paul wants to make a point to the Corinthians that whatever gifts, whatever even talents, abilities, whatever, God has given you, that apart from using them in love, they're nothing. Apart from being motivated by love, they are nothing. In fact, a great way to divide 1 Corinthians 13 up as far as just like an outline, if you want to do this, is this. The first three verses talk about the priority of love. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, the priority of love. Then verses 4 through 7 of 1 Corinthians 13 give us a portrait of love, a picture of love. And then 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 13 give us the permanence of love, the permanence of love. So the priority of love, the portrait of love, the permanence of love. Of love. Before we dive into 1 Corinthians 13, I want to remind us all of a verse in the book of Romans. Chapter 5, verse 5. You don't have to turn there unless you'd like. It simply is a reminder that Paul says to the Romans that God has poured out His love into your hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to you. So one of the things I remind Christians of, I remind myself of this, is I never as a Christian have to pray for God to give me more love, to love somebody. That according to Paul, according to Romans 5, 5, through the Holy Spirit, I have the capacity to love to the level of God if I just allow the Holy Spirit to work through me. It's not a matter of getting more love. It's a matter of tapping into the Holy Spirit and allowing the Holy Spirit to, in a sense, love through me. Because the love that we're talking about here tonight in 1 Corinthians 13 is agape love. It is supernatural love. It is not the kind of love that a human being apart from God can produce. They do not have this capacity. So one thing I want to say is, certainly people who don't, know Christ as their Savior. Can they love? Absolutely. Absolutely. People who don't know God in a personal, personal way can love, but not to this degree. Not to this standard. Not to this capacity. The only way we can love like this that Paul's going to describe in 1 Corinthians 13 is under the control of the Holy Spirit. It is supernatural love. 
And so Paul starts out by talking again to the Corinthians about the priority of love. And again, remember, in the context of using their spiritual gifts. So he says to the Corinthians, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away everything I own, and if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I receive no benefit. I mean, think about what Paul's saying here. First of all, Paul is telling the Corinthians and us that love is superior to the sensational, the spectacular, even the sacrificial in verse 3. These were all things that the Corinthians prized And yet Paul is saying, I don't care what spiritual gift you have and how you are exercising it and how you are wooing everybody with your spiritual gifts, how spectacular it is, how sensational it is, if it is not out of love, if it is not being motivated by love, then it absolutely means nothing. I mean, that's, that's pretty, pretty amazing. I mean, obviously, the Corinthians, as we're going to see next week, prized the gift of tongues. And yet in verse 1, he says, If you speak with all the languages of men and of angels, but do not have love, you're just making noise, but not making any sense. That's what the words noisy gong or clanging cymbal means. And then they prized, obviously, the gift of prophecy. And he said, hey, you can have the gift of prophecy. You can know all mysteries. You can know all knowledge, which is something, obviously, the the Corinthians. He said, you can have all this faith so that you could remove mountains. But if you don't have love, he says, it's nothing. By the way, at the end of verse 2, it it doesn't mean that we are nothing. The word nothing there in the Greek language is really cool. It means one. It means alone. So think about what Paul's saying. He's saying, if I go through life and I don't love, guess what's going to happen? I'm going to look up one day and I'm going to be all alone. It's just going to be me. Because there's something very powerful and very attractive about real love. And a person who wants people in their lives, they want relationships. Paul says, just love like God loves. Not everybody will respond. But you'll have really quality relationships if you love like God loves. And then obviously everybody prizes martyrdom and sacrifice, right? But Paul says in verse 3, if I give away everything I own, isn't that good? If I even give over my body, Man, if I, I, isn't that tremendous? But Paul says, if you're not doing it out of love, if you're not motivated out of love, he says, you receive no benefit. It's worthless. It's useless to you. Now think about that. I could give away everything that I own to somebody and they could benefit. But Paul's making a really cool point here. The way God designed his love to work is that Not only will others benefit if I truly love them, but actually I will get a benefit as well if I love like God loves. That there will be a fulfillment and a satisfaction by truly loving. That that 
will be something that hits me in a spot as a human being that nothing else can hit me there. Think about that. That's why I think Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. There's going to be something that hits me in a way by loving that way and giving that way. If it's truly love, then it will not only benefit the people I'm loving, it, it benefits me too. Paul said. So in the first three verses, the priority of love. I can have all these spectacular gifts. I can move mountains. I can, I can give away everything I own. I could give up my own life. But if it's not based on love. Paul said in the very end of it all, really doesn't mean much. And so, besides obviously thinking about the priority of love, I couldn't help but think at the end of that passage there, that part of chapter 13, to make sure what my motivation is as a Christian. Am I doing what I'm doing truly out of love for God or love for others? Or am I doing it because someone expects me to do it? I'm doing it out of guilt. I'm doing it out of being manipulated. I'm doing it for all these other reasons, but I'm not really doing it out of love. Let's even take service. One of the things that we've had so much response to the spiritual gifts package that we decided to compile a list that Lisa has available if you'd like it or not. We've, we've also got some more spiritual gift packets. But we've got a list that we've made up of all these different ministries at the Oasis and how your spiritual gift, if you have a certain spiritual gift or gifts that you've discovered, what ministries would be good for you to plug in? We've got that list tonight if you're interested in that. Um, because we think that's important, that, that people do find that place of ministry, that place of service. But again, I'm going back to what Paul said, but if I'm ministering and serving, but it's not really out of love, and isn't it true, I think it's pretty self-evident, that when you and I do something that we love to do, people can notice it. Isn't that true? And you really can see when someone really loves doing what they're doing and you know that they're called to do it. I don't know whether you've noticed it or not, but I think it's pretty evident that Nicole loves to worship. I just, yeah, it's pretty evident to me. I don't think we drag her up here on Tuesday and Sunday and go, you know, come on, Nicole. And she loves it. It's probably pretty evident how much I love to teach the Bible. Pretty evident. And the same thing is true with you. When, you. when you latch on to something, when you know that this is what God has gifted you for, what he made you for, what he created for, and there's going to be a love that you have for it, not only are you going to be fulfilled and satisfied, but other people are going to take notice of it too. They're going to say, wow, you know. It's just, it's so different on that level. And that's what Paul's trying to get the Corinthians to see. And then in verse 4, he begins to break it down. He says, and if you want a portrait of God's love for you and how God loves us and how God calls us to love each other, Paul lays it out. And again, let's remember, before we dive into this, 
This kind of love at this level can only be accomplished by yielding to the Holy Spirit of God. It is agape love. It is supernatural love that is produced in the heart of a yielded believer. It's the only way. This can't be like manufactured up on my own. I can't love at this kind of level. So the first portrait of love, verse 4, love is patient. In the Greek, it literally means (laughs) long-fused. It is dealing with being patient, not in circumstances, but patient with people. Prolonged restraint, if you will, before I say or do something. Long-fused. That that's a character of God, even. I'm so glad God is long-fused with Jeff. And yet, as I've said before, we want grace for us from God, but we want law for everybody else. You know. God, please understand one more time, and please just forgive me one more time for that same old thing. And then when someone else does something, fry him, God. You know. And yet, God is patient with us. We need to be patient with each other. Love is kind. What does it mean to be kind in the biblical sense? It means, first of all, to take initiative. A person who's kind doesn't sit back and wait for some opportunity or something to come to them. They're looking. They take initiative in being kind. And... Fittingly helping others. In other words, kindness in the Greek language here means also doing something to help somebody that fits. Just a dumb example. Uh, If somebody needs a pair of shoes and they wear a size 11 and I give them a size 13, that's not being kind. I know that's dumb, but I'm just, the word fit came in there, you know? But, But it's like sometimes we think we're helping other people, but we're not really helping them in a way that really fits what they really need. That's part of being kind too. That's how God is with us. He not only takes the initiative, but he also, whatever he does to help, it fits the situation or it fits us. And then another aspect of being kind, do it in a gracious manner. You know how some people, maybe, you know, we've helped others or others have helped us, but it hasn't been very gracious. I can remember one of my teachers, Mr. Strem, my seventh grade drafting teacher. I still have nightmares about that man. I'd be sitting there and I'd literally be writing and, and I'd, I, I'd just literally would be scared because I knew that somewhere in the room I couldn't see him and he was probably right behind me watching me do my, you know, writing. And, you know, he'd get so frustrated that he literally would take the pencil out and he'd say, here's how you do it, you know. And I'm like, thank you. You helped, but it wasn't very gracious, you know. That's what it means to be kind. Love is not envious. Literally, the word in the Greek language means to boil. Don't boil. Maybe we could even say, don't be a boil. It talks about begrudging others of what they've got 
what they've achieved or whatever. Be grudging of others. Don't be begrudging of others. One of the other things that I point out at this point is there is a difference between jealousy and envy. Jealousy is when I wish I had what someone else had. Envy is when I wish they didn't have it. Love does not brag. Love does not put itself on display. Is not conceited. Literally in the Greek, a windbag. That's how we've got some of these terms. Which then leads into the next one, is not puffed up. Inflated with pride, an air of superiority is what it means. To think I'm better than everyone else. That's not love. Love is not rude, verse 5. It does not behave in an ugly, indecent, improper way. Another word we could throw out, tactless. That would be rude in this sense. Love is not self-serving. It doesn't have to make it all about me. Always having to have it my way. That's not love. Love is not easily angered. The word in the Greek literally means sharp. Outbursts of destructive emotion or action is what this word describes. Love is not resentful. This literally means keeping detailed records of wrongs done. Can't let go of something? (laughs) That would be resentful. I don't know whether I shared this or not, but there was a tribe in Africa that, that one of their aspects of their culture was when someone would do something wrong to them, they would write it down on a piece of paper and they would hang it from their hut. So every once in a while, when they would bump into it, they'd look, yeah, I forgot about what they did to me. And it was a way of just continuing to keep it stirred up. That's not love. Some people are really good about never forgetting what we did. Sometimes we are very good about not forgetting what others have done to us and let it go and move on. I don't know about you, but I'm glad God doesn't do that with us. It's not glad about injustice. This describes a disregard for what is right and offensive to God. A disregard for what is right and offensive to God. Someone who loves like God loves will rejoice in the truth. This means you are open to light being shed on something or someone or a situation and you are living as defined by God. That's what living in truth is because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It bears all things. 
This talks about keeping confidences. Also protecting by covering. Now this doesn't mean, in this very tragic case of a school that I went to, Penn State, it doesn't mean that you shove something as heinous and ugly as what happened there under the rug. That's not what it means. But what it does mean is that if someone makes a mistake, the next person that you see, you don't go, hey, did you hear what they did? You know, we don't broadcast every little mistake that somebody makes because we wouldn't want someone to do that with us. That's what it means to bear all things. To believe all things means giving others the benefit of the doubt. That until something else comes up, I'm not going to allow what others say about that person to taint how I interact with that person. I think I've shared this with you before as a pastor now for 27 years. I've had plenty of opportunities through the years of people who've come up to me when, say, somebody new comes into the church and maybe they came from the same church that they came from or whatever. And I've had situations where people come and say, oh, Pastor Jeff, you want to watch out for this one. They were so much trouble in our other church. And that, that may have been true, okay? But I just, I, I'm just, I say that I, pre, but you've got to understand I'm not going to treat them any different than, I'm not, than I would anybody. Until they give me a reason to distrust them in some way or, you know, I'm just going to treat them normally because I'm going to give them the benefit of that. Maybe they've even changed between then and now. So I'm not going to go there. That's what God asks us to do. Hopes all things means godly optimistic. Looking forward with confidence. That's what it means. That's saying a lot. <laughs> to be godly optimistic. But as we know as Christians, the Bible even says, like in Romans eight twenty eight, that God can take whatever it is and work it. For something good. So that's what can give me hope. Is that even the pain and the trials and the suffering of my life. Don't have to be defined in and of themselves. That God is the one who has the last word. That's why Jesus said I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning but I'm also the end. And I'm going to be the one to determine how this all ends. That's what can give us hope. Because as a Christian obviously we know our future is very bright. And we can look at our future with confidence. Endures all things. Means that love is tenacious. Love is persevering. Love will hold a vital position at all costs. Sustaining the assault to the enemy. It was actually a military term. For soldiers to hold a position in spite of the assaults of the enemy and stand their ground. Love stands its ground. No wonder then Paul begins verse 8 with the last sort of portrait of love. Love 
never ends. It means that supernatural love is forever effective and forceful. God's love, supernatural agape love, is forever effective and forceful. Think about it even from Christ. Christ has been off this earth for 2,000 years. We've even never seen Him. And yet His love was so powerful that we gave our lives to follow Him. His love changed our lives 2,000 years removed from when He was here. That's pretty powerful and effective. And that same thing is true in our lives, that We can love others and love God in such a way that even long after we are gone from this earth, our love can still be in some way powerfully impacting and influencing other people as well. Love never ends. That's the portrait of God's love. And then he ends this great passage with talking about the permanence of love. Because again, all these gifts that the Corinthians put up on a pedestal, if you will. Paul says, don't you realize all these gifts are eventually going to become unnecessary, but love will never become unnecessary? That a trillion years from now, when we're in heaven and in glory, that love will still be as strong and active and effective and forceful and a part of our lives as anything is? In fact, before I get into this, I want to take you back to verse 1. Where Paul said, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I do not have love. The word have there means to continually wear. In other words, Paul was saying to the Corinthians, look, these spiritual gifts and these abilities and these talents and these opportunities that you have as Christians, they can come and go. And, and sometimes in certain seasons of your life, they're applicable. Other times they're not. What Paul wanted to say to the Corinthians right off the bat was, which is one of the reasons why love has priority, is that love is something that every day I live my life, it's applicable, it's relevant, it's practical. Every minute of every day I live my life, love is something there. It is not something something that I should ever take off as a Christian. That as a Christian, I should always, above everything else, if I go out of my house or even within my house and however I have interaction with God and with anybody else, the one thing that I should always be wearing at all times is love. I could not have anything else on if you know what I mean, but I should always have love on because love permeates everything and is There is nothing in this life and in the life to come that is not touched by love. In fact, another thing I I like to say is that love is the circulatory system of the body of Christ. That the body, you know, obviously all these different hands, feet, but it is the blood, it is the circulatory system. That's what sort of connects it all, and without it, without love, as Paul says, it it just doesn't work. So with that said, Paul says in verse 8, if there are prophecies, one day they're going to be set aside. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be set aside. For Paul said, we know 
in part. Boy, that's important for us to be reminded of. The Corinthians prided themselves on knowing. In fact, on even having a deeper knowledge than maybe others had. But Paul said, I don't care how much we know in this life. It's always going to be partial. It's always going to be a part of the whole. On this side of heaven, until we are perfected in Christ's presence, we will always only have a part or piece of the whole. We don't have it all. So that's why Paul says, at best, we can prophesy in part. We can only... We can only prophesy on the things that God has revealed to us, and there's much that he hasn't revealed to us. We can only deal with what the Bible teaches about heaven, but there's much, I'm sure, once we get there, we'll go, wow, I didn't know that. You know, I'm thinking like brownie factories, chocolate fountains, things like that. You know, that that type of thing. Oh, dear. I need intervention. We'll go on. So Paul said, or yeah, Paul says in verse 10, but when what is perfect comes, I think what it means is when we are brought into perfection, then the partial will be set aside. As John said, 1 John 3, verse 2, we are now the children of God, but we don't know yet what we will become, but we know this, when we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. That's, I think, when the partial is set aside. And then he says in verse 11, something else to consider, Corinthians, in the context of love. When we were children, we talked like children, we thought like children, we reasoned like children. And I think Paul is saying in the context that when you look at the character of love, when you look at the portrait of love, children are sure cute, (laughs) But Paul is saying from a biblical perspective, they're also pretty selfish, right? They're all about them. They're, you know, the world revolves around them. Paul said, but when we become adults, Paul said, isn't it that we should set aside childish ways? Where just like he talked about some of the portraits of love, it shouldn't always be about us and we shouldn't always be easily angered and upset about every little thing like, you know, children get and unwilling to share, unwilling to not make it all about them. And Paul said, when we become adults, we set aside childish ways. And obviously, we're all in the growing process. None of us have arrived. So I think what this speaks to me is just God always is continually pointing out some of those childish ways, if you will, that Jeff Royce has to set aside as I continue to grow. The cool thing is that when you and I are growing, we are hopefully shedding and setting aside more of the childish ways And we're becoming more of a mature spiritual adult, if you will. Then in verse 12. For now we see in a mirror indirectly. Again, no no matter how much knowledge we have, 
the whole thing is still obscure to us. We only get what God has revealed. We don't get the whole thing. Again, I've used the iceberg many times here at the Oasis and in other places where I've taught. That, that's about our limitation. We see as human beings just what's above the surface line. We can't see below the surface. We have limited... But God sees it all. And God doesn't always reveal it all to us. But then, Paul says, then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully. I love that. Just as I have been fully known. One of the things that I share with people, especially when I'm doing a memorial service, is I try to encourage and comfort the loved ones and friends of someone who's died that I believe that one of the cool things is, based upon this verse and others, is when they get to heaven, they don't have to spend the first couple thousand years introducing themselves to everybody. Hey, I know you don't know who I am, but I'm you. I think that one of the things that this verse teaches is when I get to heaven, I will know fully and I will be known fully. In other words, I'll be walking down the streets of heaven and look up and there'll be a gentleman coming and I'll just know that's Noah. Or that's Mary or that's Esther. That's Noah. That's Moses. I'll just know. In other words, when we get there, when we see him and become just like he is in the way that we can, I think a whole new world is going to open up to our understanding. A lot of the questions, if not all, will be answered at that point. But not now. Now we just know a part of the whole. But the one thing that we do know is how important love is to God and how important it should be in our lives. And so Paul, I think, is saying, guys, instead of focusing on what you don't know, why don't you just pour out your life in what you know? And that is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. We could spend the rest of our days being consumed by that. Which is why then Paul ends this great chapter with these words. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Supernatural, selfless, sacrificial love. A love that can only be produced with the aid of the Holy Spirit taking control. That's why the very first fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22 is love. Love. That's why it's important for us as believers, according to Paul, to be filled with the Spirit. To allow the Spirit to control us. It is only then can we truly love as God described it here in 1 Corinthians 13. But here's the cool thing. I'll end with this. God wouldn't have put this chapter in the Bible if it wasn't possible for us to do it. We have, through the Holy Spirit, the capacity to love like this and to live like this. And think about how loving 
and having relationships like this kind of love, how it would so fulfill and satisfy our lives and, and so transform our church, our community, our nation, our world. Man, if we had people where we were loving each other like this, we could turn the world upside down. Which is exactly, I think, isn't that what they did back in the book of Acts? The Bible says that first group of Christians were turning the world upside down. I don't think it was because they were the most gifted, talented, influential, powerful people in the world. I think we know they were anything but. But they loved God and they loved each other. And there wasn't anybody who got around them who didn't know it. One of the really cool things, and I realize I say that we, we always can improve, I agree. But one of the really cool things that I hear from visitors, people who even come in from out of town and visit our church once or twice, one of the things that they share with Lisa and I is, we want you to know, man, we can tell how much your people really love and care for each other. Guys, I don't think our church, I don't think us as a group of Christians could be paid any higher compliment than that. That's exactly what Paul's telling the Corinthians. Don't be known by all the sensational, spectacular, sacrificial. If it's not with love, it means nothing at the end of the day. But when you and I love, unbelievable. I said I was going to end. I'll say one more thing. <laughs> I think the key to it all, though, is this. I think this is the key to it all. I can't really love somebody else until I learn to accept God's love for me. That's why some Christians, in a sense, they have a hard time really loving. Because I think part of it is because they still, they still have not really received God's love for them. I mean, they'll say, yeah, I know God loves me. I know that's what the Bible teaches or something like that. But to really say they've really embraced God loving them? They haven't. And so I think that's where it starts. If there's one thing I could leave you all with tonight, it would be let God's love just wash over you. And when you and I allow God to just wrap up his arms and just squeeze us and love us and love on us, we're going to see, I think, a new capacity to be able to love one another. Don't let what you've done, don't let any sin, don't let Satan... Don't let anything 
in your past or present keep you from receiving God's everlasting love for you? Let's pray. God, thank you for this great chapter in your book. Thank you for reminding us Especially, Lord, we get so busy with our own lives and it's so easy to forget about your love for us and how we should be loving others. So, God, it was a great reminder tonight. And I thank you for the love that you have showered upon us and upon our church family. And, Lord, for the love that has been shared here in the first 18 months of our existence, but God, I know that we could go a lot greater and that we need to just continue it over the long haul too. So God, I'm just going to ask that all of us would just renew our commitment to love, to allow your love to impact us in such a way that we truly then could give ourselves to love others. God, we know there's nothing greater. There's nothing more permanent. There's nothing more lasting than love. God, thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Folks, I'm real excited about the message Sunday. Hope you can be here Sunday out of the book of Philippians. Have a great rest of the week. Don't forget to see Lisa about the spiritual gifts or ministry opportunities. We love you guys. Have a great week.